0: Let's join together in prayer once more. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who is above us, but also beside us. And as we love you, so help us also to live in fear of you in the right way. Grant us these things as we explore uh, this tension again this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well this is a third in a series of sermons in which we're looking at the subject of tensions in the Christian life not tensions as in anxieties and worries but tensions as in some of the paradoxes of what it means to live as a Christian which is not ever a life of unruffled tranquility as some people imagine nor is it a life of unparalleled living on cloud 9 as some others might claim. But it's a life of tensions where we face paradoxes, truths at two ends of of the spectrum that seem to butt up against each other and be contradictory, but in fact are true. In week one, we thought about the tension that exists between submission to Christ and the freedom with which he sets us free. How can we submit and yet find freedom? How can we be under his lordship, but then when under his lordship, be fully free? Last week, we thought about the tension that exists between joy and sorrow. The Christian life is both. How can we reconcile the joy and the sorrow in our lives as we seek to serve God and walk his ways? And this morning, I want to bring you to, to your attention the one that exists between love and fear, that is, loving God and fearing God. Already you kind of guess that you can do both. You can love God and you can fear God, but how does that work together? In what ways can we love and fear God in the way that is honouring to him? I want to do that first by asking if fear is ever a proper Christian emotion. Should a Christian ever be fearful? Now, there are many people who would answer that with an emphatic negative. A fear, they would say, is not only plainly forbidden, but it should not be evident in the lives of God's people. For example, in the Old Testament, as we read from Psalm 34 this morning, we heard David say, I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me out of all my Fears. Or again, such people would say that Jesus Himself said, Not only in Matthew six, do not be anxious about your life, or about your food, or about your body, or about your clothing. And he said to his disciples, Be of good courage, it is I do not be afraid. Or they might say the Apostle Paul said God has not given us a spirit of timidity and fear but of courage. And again as Paul wrote to the Philippians do not be anxious about anything. Have no fear. So faced by this battery of biblical texts it seems the point is well made that fear is something that should not be found among us. Generally. But the matter is not as simple as that, is there? Is it? For although the Christian is not to be afraid of life or death or of any human being or any circumstance or any combination of any of these things, yet there is at least one person, according to Scripture, whom we should fear, and it's right to fear. That's God himself. So the same Old Testament psalm The same Old Testament which says the Lord delivered me from all my fears also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The same Jesus who said fear not those who kill the body as we read from Luke 12 this morning also said I will warn you whom you should fear. Fear him who has the power to destroy the body and soul in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And of course, he was referring to God. So this narrows down the field a little bit, doesn't it? We're not thinking about fear in general, but about the fear of God. And so the question becomes, what is our true attitude to God? Are we to love God? Yes, of course. Are we to fear God? Yes, of course. And if we're to do both, how do we reconcile them? So we come to a text that will help us greatly from the pen of the Apostle Peter. Thanks, Felicity, on the screen. In his first letter, chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And it goes on, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This text will provide us With the answer, the following three things that will help unravel the tension between fear of God and love for God. First note the condition that Peter raises. You'll notice the emphatic words at the beginning of verse 17, something in the Greek that's even more emphasised and those words are if, if as father If, as Father, you invoke his name. That is, if this is the case, then this is the case. And we should not be in any doubt that we do call upon God as Father. The Lord Jesus gave us permission to do that. He issued us a command to do that when he said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it plain, we are to think of God as Father. And we are to address him, not in a heap of empty phrases like the pagans of the day. He says, because your heavenly Father knows what you need. Therefore, we can ask, seek and knock in childlike simplicity. And we can do this because if we who are evil, as Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to our children, How much more does our Heavenly Father know how to give good things to His children? So we do invoke God as Father. It is in fact your privilege as a believer to invoke God as Father, to call upon Him as Father. And you can do that because God has actually made you His children. He doesn't only call us His children... He has made us his children. That's what we are. He has adopted us into his family. He's granted a ready access to him at any time. He means us as his children to love him, to trust him, to call upon him as our loving heavenly father. Well, then surely somebody says there's no place for fear there, is there, in our attitude to God? How can there be fear? Doesn't the Apostle Paul write in Romans 8 that God has given us not a spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but has given us a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father? And doesn't the Apostle John say in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment? How is it that Paul and John say, don't fear, and yet Peter tells us to do this very thing, to fear him. Here's the tension. How do you reconcile this? Many people, of course, would make no attempt to reconcile this. They would just say with a rather superior attitude, oh, this is just another of the many discrepancies in the Bible. The Bible's full of them, you know, because... The biblical authors contradict each other from time to time. Now, we do believe that the Bible is the word of God and that behind the human authors there lies a divine author who is self-consistent and doesn't contradict himself. If that is so, how can you harmonise what Peter says, what Paul and John say? The answer is not far away. It's when Paul says God has not given us a spirit of fear and John says perfect love casts out fear, the kind of fear they are talking about is a cringing apprehension, the kind of fear a slave might have of a master who is cruel in character and arbitrary in punishment. God's not like that. Such fear of God would be incompatible with our Christian profession because God is perfect in goodness. He is no tyrant. He's not called us to be his slaves. He's adopted us as his children. So this love for God that we have because of his love for us casts out the kind of fear that is a servile apprehension. What will God do? I'm afraid of him. Not at all. We don't treat God like that. We're not afraid of God. But there is a kind of fear which is not only consistent with his fatherhood of us but is required by his fatherhood of us. That's reverential awe. It might remind you that the Old Testament law commanded this reverence, this respect for God. You'll find it in Leviticus 19, verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. And I think I'm right in saying in the authorised version that it's translated, every one of you should fear his mother and father. And it's right for us to regard our mother and father with such respect, a higher level of reverence. How much more should we revere our heavenly father? Second, let's note the reasons that Peter gives us. There are two reasons why if we call upon God as father, we should do what comes next. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Two reasons. The first reason he gives is that the Father is our judge. Listen to the text. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. You see the phrase as the father who judges the father who judges what can we learn about from this verse about the judgment of God three quick things first it's universal if you invoke him as father who judges each one it's universal no one can or will escape the judgment that God will bring. Some indeed by the mercy of God will be spared condemnation but nobody is is going to be exempt from judgment. Also it's impartial. The text says if you call on him as father who judges each one impartially, that is without respect of persons. The judgment of God will not be affected by our outward status or our outward appearance. But rich and poor, the famous and the not so famous, Jew and Gentile, believers and non-believers, all will face his judgment. It's universal, it's impartial, it's also moral. God will judge each one impartially according to his deeds. Note that this is not according to what each one of us has said, not according to what you and I profess to be, but according to what you and I have done. Now please don't misunderstand this. This does not turn the gospel on its head. This does not deny the doctrine of justification By faith alone. It does not assert that salvation is by good works after all. It does not say that God will justify every man according to his works, but that God will judge every man according to his works. Justification is what Christ has done for us on the cross, regardless of the works we have done, but the judgment. ...that we will face is because of the works we have done. Were they good works? Are they not good works? And the reason for that is not far to seek. It is the judgment day, although no doubt it's beyond our comprehension... ...the judgment day will in some sense be a public occasion... ...on which both the evidence and the verdict will be public... And the question will be, what public evidence is there that our faith in Christ has been genuine? That we have truly and sincerely trusted in him and been born again by his word? What public evidence is there? There's only one possible answer to that. And the answer must be good works. Good works of holiness and love are the only solid public evidence of our faith. You could say words, but what do words count for? That's why in the letter of James he says, I will show you my faith by my works. God justifies us by faith, be clear on that, but he judges us according to our works. Now this is a rather solemn truth that we don't think about enough and we need to note that it is not incompatible with our redemption because Peter the Apostle goes on in the next verse to remind us well we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ but even those redeemed by the blood of Christ are going to be judged according to their works and what Peter is reminding us is that we, if we have been redeemed by Christ It's got to be obvious in our lives. It's no use uh, trusting in a relationship with God as Father if it makes no difference to our conduct. It's no use trusting in some claim to conversion or trusting in our baptism or trusting in the number of testimonies we've we've given or the number of hymns we've sung. No, the question is whether our verbal profession has ever been authenticated by good works. Revealed itself. And this is a sobering question which will deliver us from presumption and lead us into a godly fear. The first reason, our Father is our judge. The second reason, our Father is our Redeemer. I've already begun to quote verse 18 You were redeemed. And you know this, he says, you'll notice how that sentence begins. You know that. And if you know that, then it will lead you into a life of godly fear. Peter draws an analogy here between the believer's salvation from sin and Israel's deliverance from Egypt. In both cases, there was bondage, Egypt on the one hand, and the futile ways, pagan ways, inherited from our fathers on the other. And in each there's a divine deliverance through the shedding of blood, through the shedding of the Passover lamb in the case of the deliverance from Egypt and the shedding of blood of Christ in the case of deliverance from sin. And in this salvation we've not been redeemed by something that's perishable like money but by the blood of Christ Knowing this, Peter says, recalling the infinite costliness of your redemption, this will keep you humble. This will enable you to pass the time of our pilgrimage here in fear, in godly reverence. Now, looking back over what we've mentioned are these two reasons that Peter gives us, holy fear and our love and relationship with God we're reminded to not presume upon the fatherhood of God in a facile, glib or superficial way and we do this by remembering that our father is our judge and that he is our redeemer, that there is within us a grateful remembrance of our redemption, its costliness on the one hand and a thoughtful anticipation of our judgment and its solemnity on the other these will deliver us from undue levity and from presumption It will deliver us of speaking of god as if he was an equal or worse still as if he was some soft and senile father whom we can manipulate to do our will for our pleasure god is not like that he's not our equal And not only do we not owe our life to God but we must give an account of that life one day to him as our judge. And this is the God upon whom we call a loving and merciful and compassionate father but a generous redeemer and a true judge. So Peter says, live your life here, conduct yourselves here in godly reverence and fear. Third, so let's seek to consider the applications that Peter implies. It's Still very well talking about in theory. What will it mean in practice? I want to suggest to you that it ought to affect our worship and our witness. For these are the things in the context of what Peter is writing. He says, if you invoke his God as Father, that is, if you call upon him as Father in your worship, whether that worship is in private or public, then show the right kind of fear. Don't you think then that it follows that all our worship could do with more reverence and isn't that the missing aspect of worship? today in so many parts of the world. Maybe there's a way for you to do this at home in your private devotions so that whenever you pray at home, you're reminded before you pray just how great that God is that you're praying to, just who that God is that you're praying to. There's nothing to be gained by barging into his presence without taking time to remember who we are speaking to. Some people suggest there's a place for considering your posture in prayer. Perhaps there's a case for something that might reflect outwardly that your heart's about inwardly. Of course, you can pray anywhere at any time and there are no set rules. But for set times of prayer, maybe consider cultivating reverence for God. And if that's true of private devotion, how much more is that true of public devotion? Preparing yourself for worship, for public worship, is also important. Now, that's not always possible in every situation, but any kind of preparation is better than no preparation whatsoever so that our hearts, when we come together, our hearts are prepared to receive the word of God and we respond to it. We need to come to worship in a quiet and a a receptive and a prepared and an expectant mood so that we can sing joyfully, so that we can pray thoughtfully, so that we can worship expectantly, so that we participate in the worship, not just be in church. So that when the veil is drawn aside and we stand as it were before the throne of God mingling with the company of heaven we actually do offer God due worship of our hearts. It applies, doesn't it, to our worship. Reverence for God. So needed. But it applies also to our witness. And Peter here connects this reverent fear of God with holy living. For the whole context of these verses are about holy living. You'll see that if you look at verse 15 and 16. As he who called you is holy, you are to be holy yourselves in all your conduct. The context is one of holiness. And I want to suggest to you that the greatest secret of living a holy life is this live in the conscious presence of God? Live as though God was right next to you. It's why, for example, we read of Job in the Old Testament that he feared God and departed from evil. Ever noticed that combination? He feared God. He departed from evil. There is nothing like the fear of God to lead us to depart from evil. I do believe there is little holiness because there is such little fear of God. And if we had more of a fear of God, the reverent kind of fear, we would have more holiness. Let's conclude all this by bringing to you an example and the experience of the great hymn writer pastor and preacher John Newton. An only child John lost his mother when he was 7 years old. And he went to sea at 11. Years later he became involved as one of his one of his biographers writes in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. And he plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation. Then one day when John was 23 years old, his ship was in imminent peril in a storm and he cried to God for mercy, fearing God that he would be his judge and he was given that mercy. He became a believer. He never forgot that mercy and the costliness of his redemption. And in order to have it imprinted on his memory what he had been and what God had done for him, he had printed in bold letters and fastened across the wall above the mantelpiece of his study the words of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. "'You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt.'" and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is, you shall never forget your redemption and the costliness of it. So then, even as we enjoy the privileges of the children of God, even as we call upon God as Father and love him with all that we can possibly do, Let's not presume upon the relationship. Let's remember that our Father is our redeemer and he is our judge. And remembering that will help us to do as Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear on earth in humble and grateful thanksgiving. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we pray and remember the costliness of our redemption, we thank you for the one who redeemed us, the price he paid, that we might be his forever. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that these things, by this, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, that we are brought into a relationship. And because of that, it's not anything we have earned or done, but something we have received and we receive it with grateful hearts. But help us not to presume that therefore you are just like us, or that we can twist you or manipulate you to doing whatever we want. For we were unlovely, and yet you loved us with a great love that far surpasses any love we have ever known. So, as we live our lives, so enable us to call upon you with reverent fear, but to love you with thankful hearts. We ask this, that you might do it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.